hearing uh, Patrick Mannion give his paper about Newfoundland, I was struck by certain parallels between uh, Newfoundland and Canada. It should be emphasized, of course, Newfoundland was not part of Canada in those days. It was a separate dominion or colony, depending on your point of view. Uh, there was some communication between uh, Canada and Newfoundland, but uh, in the days before air travel, and uh, given the nature of the Newfoundland railway system, which was briefly referred to, there wasn't a lot of communication between them. Also, the history of the Irish communities in Canada and in Newfoundland uh, is quite distinct. Canada, and particularly Quebec, of course, was famously a destination for a lot of famine and post-famine immigration uh, in the 1840s. Uh, Gros Eel, the quarantine uh, station where a lot of these people were received and where a great many of them died, uh, is now a national historic site in Canada and well worth seeing. Uh, and uh, Quebec, uh, in particular, developed a substantial Irish Catholic population whose exact size is difficult to determine because there was considerable intermarriage between Irish Catholics and French Canadian Catholics. So many French Canadians, people whose first language, sometimes only language is French to this day, have uh, definitely Irish names. Uh, so uh, the Canadian census. Uh, attempts with what appears to be great precision to enumerate the exact size of the various ethnic groups in the country, but uh, these data have always been rather questionable because uh, of mixed marriages and so on and so forth. Uh, also, it must be noted that particularly in Ontario, uh, most of the Irish were in fact Irish Protestants, uh, mainly from the north, uh, the Orange Order was very powerful in Ontario uh, for a long time, to some extent in, in Western Canada, well, to some extent in all parts of Canada, I guess, but mainly in Ontario. Toronto in particular uh, was sort of the fortress of Orangeism, sometimes called the Belfast of North America uh, because of the importance of the order. Uh, in uh, Toronto politics and the police department, the fire department, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's uh, the census did not usually cross correlate um, well not at all uh, religion and ethnicity but uh, uh, attempts have been made to determine what percentage of the people enumerated as Irish ethnicity uh, in Canada were Protestants and it seems to have been probably about two thirds certainly a majority and particularly so in Ontario um, but uh, after 1867 Confederation, there was a very slow growth in the Irish population, especially the Irish Catholic population uh, in Canada. A lot of people went to the United States. You didn't need a passport to do that in those days, as you do now. Uh, and uh, so there was definitely a, a loss of, uh, of um, Irish Catholic population, particularly uh, to uh, the states of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, uh, and elsewhere. So, although the Irish had been, for a while, the second largest ethnic group in Canada after the French, uh, they, their uh, relative weight in the Canadian population declined considerably. Also, of course, uh, republicanism was not 
fashionable doctrine in Canada, which was and is a monarchy. Uh, perhaps the most celebrated Irish-Canadian politician, Thomas Darcy McGee, had been a former Republican, uh, but uh, became a monarchist, a loyal subject of the Queen, uh, which, a fact which may have played a role in his assassination uh, less than a year uh, after Confederation, one of the very few political assassinations in, in Canada's history. So uh, that's, uh, that's a bit of background. Quebec, of course, is a somewhat different story. As I say, there was always in Quebec uh, some sense of, of uh, identification with uh, Ireland's uh, struggle for not necessarily a republic, but for a greater degree of freedom. Uh, and, and people in Quebec, partly because of the sort of mingling uh, of the Irish Catholic and French Catholic populations, were sort of aware uh, of these, uh, these parallels. So, uh, you know, Parnell, for example, visited Montreal in 1880 as part of a North American tour, uh, raised quite a lot of uh, money there. The Quebec legislature uh, voted unanimously in 1886 uh, to congratulate uh, Gladstone on introducing his uh, first home rule bill, which of course uh, failed. Um, and uh, the ancient order of Hibernians was established in, in Quebec at quite an early stage, some sources say as early as 1862. Uh, John Redmond also visited Montreal and, and uh, made speeches there, even managing a few words of French at the end of his speech, uh, and so on. So that's sort of the, the early background. On the other hand, there were some tensions between French and Irish Canadians, notably in, in uh, French and Irish Catholic Canadians, notably in, in uh, Ontario, where uh, the uh, Ontario government, uh, just before the First World War, um, severely restricted the use of French as a language of instruction uh, in the schools of Ontario, uh, and were supported in this by... Uh, most of the Irish uh, Catholic clergy uh, in the province who did not uh, want to see the, uh, the French language extended into Ontario. So uh, that created sort of a rift between the two ethnic communities. Well, then we come to the war. Now, the war in 1914 was a very traumatic event in Canada's uh, relatively placid uh, and peaceful history. We like to call ourselves the peaceable kingdom. This was certainly the biggest uh, sort of war in Canadian history relative to the importance of the country. I mean, we lost 60,000 uh, lives in, in the First World War, uh, less than 50,000 in the second, although our population had grown by about 50% in the interval. So uh, the 1914 war was really uh, a big deal. Now, at the beginning, most people, including it seems most Irish Catholics, uh, were supportive of the British war effort. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, data on the voluntary enlistments uh, of people in the, in the Canadian Army uh, from 1914 up to uh, the end of the war, uh, or near the end of the war, uh, showed that um, uh, Irish Catholics, Catholics generally, were in, in outside of Quebec, it's another story, were as likely uh, to enlist uh, in the armed forces as Protestants, generally speaking. Uh, and the uh, Catholic clergy in Ontario certainly supported the war uh, and so on. 
Um, and in fact, uh, this uh, fact led to some tensions within the ancient order of Hibernians between the Canadian and American uh, branches of that organization. A lot of the Canadian members were unhappy with the uh, anti-war and neutralist sentiments expressed by the American, anti-British sentiments expressed by the American members of the AOH. Uh, this is, of course, before the United States entered the war. And uh, some felt that the Canadian uh, organization should sever its ties with the American organization because of this very significant dispute, uh, and so on. Uh, this never completely happened, but there certainly was a certain amount of tension there. There, there was also an effort, well, a, a, a regiment known as the Irish Canadian Rangers was formed uh, in Montreal. This was not an entirely Catholic organization, but mainly so, uh, and uh, they uh, were sent overseas. But unfortunately, the British uh, then uh, rather stupidly uh, broke up that regiment and, and used parts of it to reinforce uh, or to replace the losses in various other uh, regiments, so uh, it sort of fell apart. And uh, this had uh, one, of, one of several things that eroded Irish Catholic support for the war effort uh, in Canada. But generally speaking, in the, in the early part of the war, uh, up until uh, and indeed right up to the time of the rising, um, generally Canadian sentiment uh, was uh, pro-war, even, even in Quebec. I mean, Henri Bourassa, the leader of Quebec nationalism at the time, uh, initially said uh, that Canada should fight on the side of Britain and France, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, he, of course, later, when the government became rather heavy-handed, he changed his views a bit. So uh, we come to the rising in 1916. Um, initial reaction uh, was uh, fairly limited. In fact, I, I went through the, uh, the uh, Canadian parliamentary debates for uh, the, the period April and May of, of uh, uh, 1916 and found only very few references to uh, what had been going on in Ireland. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, the reaction to the rising initially was hostile. For example, uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, who had been, uh, uh, as most French Canadians and many English Canadians were, uh, had been sympathetic to the movement for Irish home rule before, before the war, um, he, uh, he, he said in, in the House of Commons uh, that uh, German plotting and gold did nothing more than raise a riot, which was at an end after three days at most. So that was sort of how he dismissed uh, the rising. Um, uh, George P. Graham, another liberal member of parliament, uh, referred to the uh, outrages uh, of misguided men in the city of Dublin. Uh, another, uh, another parliamentarian senator, Henry Cloran, whose parents were Irish, also a liberal, uh, was uh, somewhat more nuanced. He condemned the rising, but he blamed it in part on the failure of the British to give Ireland home rule uh, as promised. Uh, and uh, generally the uh, commentary in the press uh, was uh, also hostile to the rising. But uh, this changed after the executions of the uh, people who had signed the, the, uh, the proclamation. That produced quite a, a sudden change uh, in opinion. 
most of the Canadian press, English as well as French, uh, opposed the, the executions in editorials and, and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, Senator Cloran, who I just quoted earlier, uh, compared the executions with the uh, hanging people for stealing a loaf of bread, as it had been the practice in England a century or two before. Uh, only Bourassa uh, then expressed sympathy with the Easter Rising uh, and drew a parallel between the Easter Rising and Quebec's own rebellion against British rule uh, in 1837. Uh, and uh, he said that they're referring to the, uh, the uh, signers of the proclamation. Their only error was not to have succeeded. Uh, Laurier also, despite his somewhat ungenerous remarks about the rising at the time it happened, said that his heart was broken by the executions. And he contrasted uh, the executions with the lenient treatment uh, of uh, Unionists who had, in 1914, defied the authority of the British government, had stockpiled arms, and so forth, um, but, uh, and said, you know, clearly a double standard uh, is being, uh, being applied here. Uh, the uh, Irish Canadian Rangers, whom I've referred to before, the, the regiment, uh, faced uh, uh, sharp declines in, in recruitment uh, in the second half of 1916, and that was probably uh, a factor in the uh, British decision to allow the regiment to be broken up and its uh, uh, members sort of distributed among other regiments to replace their losses. Um, the, the colonel of the regiment uh, actually uh, left the army and returned to Montreal uh, and he formed an organization called the Irish Canadian National League uh, in 1917. Uh, so uh, this sort of indicated how his views had changed. Uh, now we now come to Catherine Hughes who was mentioned uh, in the, in the uh, Patrick's paper on, on Newfoundland. Uh, she is an interesting person and uh, you know, illustrates the, what we heard earlier today about the importance of uh, women uh, in Irish revolutionary politics. She was a, an early interesting example. Uh, she, although she was apparently born in Prince Edward Island, as, as Patrick said, uh, she was actually working for the government of Alberta when she became interested in, in Irish uh, nationalism. Uh, Alberta, like other Canadian provinces, had a I guess still does, an office in London, England, uh, which was intended to promote immigration, investment, and so forth. Uh, she was working in that office, the office of the Agent General of Alberta, and uh, from 1913 to 1917, during that time she visited Ireland apparently more than once and met people there uh, and became very interested in the Irish cause. And eventually she uh, resigned from her position with the government of Alberta to devote herself full-time, or nearly full-time, uh, to Irish politics. And she attracted the attention of Eamon de Valera, uh, and in a sense she sort of became almost his representative uh, in Canada. Uh, she also, um, uh, at the end of the war, uh, she persuaded the St. Patrick's Society of Montreal to uh, send a telegram to the Canadian Prime Minister, Sir Robert Borden, asking him to support Irish freedom at the peace conference, which was drafting uh, the peace treaties, which apparently he didn't do. Um, <laughs> anyway, if he did, it didn't do much good. Uh, anyway, um, 
Meanwhile, in, in, uh, 19, in January 1919, uh, there was a mass meeting in Montreal at, uh, at a uh, sort of meeting place which still exists, known as the Monument National. It's not really a monument, it's, a, it's really a sort of a big conference hall, um, and a mass meeting in support of Ireland. Uh, Laurier, who actually uh, was uh, close to death, he died only a few weeks later, uh, said he was unable to attend but sent his best wishes. Uh, and uh, there was uh, quite a militant speech by Charles Foy, uh, the head of the uh, uh, AOH in, in Canada, uh, and so on. Um, the War of Independence uh, in Ireland, uh, which followed uh, beginning just about that time, uh, radicalized the Irish in Montreal at any rate. Uh, Republicanism uh, grew in strength uh, there. Uh, later in the year, uh, several people from Montreal traveled to Ogdensburg, New York, uh, to a fundraising dinner attended by de Valera. De Valera was not able to enter Canada at the time uh, because he, I guess he, had, you know, for, because of his role in the Rising and uh, the uh, War Measures Act, which was then in effect in Canada and remained so for some time after the war, uh, allowed the government to exclude basically whoever they wanted. So, if you wanted to have dinner with De Valera, you had to go to New York State, uh, as these people did. Uh, and the following year, he visited uh, another upstate New York community, Plattsburgh, uh, favorite uh, shopping place for Montrealers then as now, uh, and uh, gave another speech, and again a delegation from Montreal uh, went down to Plattsburgh uh, to hear him. In 1920, uh, there was a memorial mass for the, uh, the freedom fighters, as they're called, who, who had been killed in the aftermath of the Easter Rising, uh, and uh, that memorial mass attracted 4,000 people uh, in Montreal, both English-speaking uh, and, and French-speaking. Uh, Catherine Hughes continued to be active, uh, and uh, she's uh, had to quite an important person uh, in this story. Another important person is a man named John Loy, L-O-Y-E, uh, the son of Irish immigrants. He was born in, in Griffintown, Montreal's sort of traditional Irish uh, ghetto, which has now largely ceased to exist, uh, but an important place in his time. And he founded uh, the Montreal branch of uh, the Friends of Irish Freedom uh, in 1920. Uh, in, uh, later in that year, largely at the behest of de Valera and of Catherine Hughes, uh, the Friends of Irish Freedom uh, merged with the self-determination, or sorry, merged with the Irish-Canadian National League, which I mentioned before, which the former colonel of the regiment had formed, uh, and the combined organization became the Self-Determination for Ireland League of Canada and Newfoundland, a rather unwieldy title. To say this merger uh, was largely arranged by Catherine Hughes and largely at the behest uh, of de Valera. In the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Montreal in 1919, uh, Sinn Féin banners appeared for the first time, uh, and in 1920, this also happened in Quebec City, where the St. Patrick's Day Parade had been temporarily suspended during the war, but was revived. Uh, the, uh, actually, the Quebec City branch of the, uh, the Self-Determination League uh, was uh, somewhat more radical even than the Montreal branch. 
uh, perhaps because it was almost entirely French-speaking, uh, and uh, its meetings were attended by uh, prominent French Canadians, including Henri Bourassa, uh, Armand Laverne, another French-Canadian nationalist politician, uh, widely rumored to have been the result of an affair between uh, uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier and the wife of his law partner. That's never been proved, but a lot of, uh, a lot of people believed it. Um, and uh, uh, he was also uh, prominent in, in, in uh, involved with the Social Determination for Ireland League. Uh, and so was, uh, to some lesser extent, uh, Canon Lionel Grew, a priest uh, who became really the most important public intellectual in Quebec during the interval between the two world wars, uh, a uh, uh, strong supporter uh, of French-Canadian uh, nationalism. So uh, the Self-Determination for Ireland League, say, uh, was open to people of any race or, or, or religion, but, of course, its main supporters were either Irish uh, or French-Canadian. Uh, during the period when the War Measures Act was in, in force, it was under continuous uh, surveillance from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, who kept uh, careful uh, watch on its activities. Uh, at its peak, it had uh, 50,000 members uh, in Canada. They were organized into uh, local branches, of which there were at least 10 in Quebec, Montreal alone, there were six. Uh, most of the branches were uh, named after uh, deceased uh, Irish heroes of either 1916 or of earlier outbreaks of nationalism. Uh, for example, the branch in Griffintown, headed by John Loy, who I mentioned before, uh, was named after Wolf Tone. Uh, Oddly enough, though, one of the branches, the branch in uh, Notre Dame de Grasse, the part of Montreal where I grew up, was named after Thomas Darcy McGee, who, of course, was an ex-Republican, not, not a Republican at the end of his life, but uh, in any event. So uh, this, uh, say this was a mass organization with 50,000 members at its peak. Membership only cost $1, which may have partly explained its success. And uh, it was, uh, as I say, it, its title included Newfoundland, so the Newfoundland uh, branch, in spite of Newfoundland being a separate country, was uh, viewed as sort of part of the Canadian branch. But there were similar organizations uh, in Australia and New Zealand uh, and, and elsewhere in the British Empire. Uh, John Loy, who I've mentioned, uh, was, uh, who was uh, uh, very active in, in this organization, um, uh, wrote to Frank Walsh, who was uh, a, a lawyer in New York and a confidant of de Valera, uh, and with uh, suggestions on how to improve the, uh, the effectiveness uh, of the uh, anti-treaty uh, military forces uh, fighting in Ireland. It's not clear that Mr. Loy had any military experience to speak of, but anyway, he had his uh, sort of an amateur strategist, I guess, and he did uh, provide his input. Uh, there uh, seems also that some uh, weapons were shipped uh, from Canada to the anti-treaty uh, forces, and he may have played uh, a part in that. Interestingly, Mr. Loy lived until the 1960s, and uh, in his, in, in his late, later life, he uh, sort of abandoned politics, uh, at least ostensibly, and became interested in the history of Canadian railroads. He uh, founded the Canadian Railroad Historical Association, which still exists. But uh, anyway, 
Uh, and in fact, I did uh, get to meet him a bit for, because of that. Anyway, um, the next major sort of event to, to change things, as far as Canada is concerned, uh, was the signing of the treaty uh, in December 1921. Uh, and uh, this, of course, uh, divided the, the, I mean, the, the treaty and the civil war that followed between uh, pro-treaty and anti-treaty people in Ireland uh, did divide the Canadian Irish community. Some, like John Loy, uh, adhered to the, uh, the um, um, anti-treaty side, but the majority supported the pro-treaty side, and this, uh, this certainly greatly divided uh, the Irish community, and it really destroyed the self-determination for Ireland League, which split on this issue, and, and much of its membership just sort of faded away. Um, and uh, so, uh, in, since the, most of the, the community now supported the, uh, the uh, pro-treaty side, uh, it, of course, became... Uh, less radical. Uh, J.A. Whitaker, who was a, a Montrealer who was uh, uh, sort of active in, in the sort of pro-treaty uh, politics, uh, received a letter from Michael Collins in 1922 uh, expressing thanks for uh, the, their help and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, he praised the great city of Montreal, although he also, as he put it, uh, he also, though, expressed thanks that the, uh, uh, the organization had condemned the, uh, the sort of anti-Catholic atrocities going on in Belgium or in Belfast at that time. Uh, later in the year, uh, Whitaker and several other Irish Canadians sent a telegram uh, to, uh, to Cosgrove after the, uh, supporting the Free State and wishing him a happy new year. But some uh, unrepentant Republicans like John Loy uh, refused to sign uh, that letter. And in fact, uh, Whitaker uh, then uh, became uh, uh, very hostile to what he saw as Irish Republican propaganda coming from the United States. Uh, and uh, he wrote, uh, in January 1923, he wrote letters to Montreal's uh, uh, newspapers uh, denouncing what he called Irish-American Republican propaganda. And he also sent a letter to, uh, to Cosgrove in Ireland uh, complaining about that also and saying that uh, as far as Irish-Canadians were concerned, or speaking for himself anyway, that the free state uh, uh, and the treaty were satisfactory if that was what the Irish people want. And he said, uh, uh, he claimed that in Canada, 98% uh, of Irish Canadians uh, supported the uh, pro-treaty side and, and the free state, which is uh, almost certainly a, uh, you know, an excessive uh, estimate. Um, and similarly, the uh, uh, Charles Foy, uh, the, the head of the uh, AOH in Ontario, whom I mentioned before, uh, uh, told the uh, Ontario Convention of the AOH in 1925, it's apparent that Ireland, by accepting the Free State Treaty, has tied the hands of her friends throughout the world who were fighting for a republic. But since the Irish people have decided, we outside must of necessity accept that but should continue to fight for a free and independent nation. It's a very carefully nuanced uh, statement, maybe trying to, perhaps reflecting his own ambivalence uh, to some extent. 
So uh, that was uh, sort of the end of the story. Except it might be noted that uh, during the 1920s, uh, Canada and the Irish Free State um, were sort of allies in, in trying to somewhat loosen without completely destroying uh, the ties between Britain and the Dominions. And their joint efforts by uh, Cosgrove on behalf of Ireland and Mackenzie King on behalf of Canada uh, eventually led the British to recognize that the Dominions were really independent countries in all but name, only sharing allegiance to the Crown but not much more, and this in turn led to the Statute of Westminster in, in 1931. Uh, which is, in effect, the effective date uh, of Canadian independence. So uh, this sort of uh, alliance between uh, Canada and Ireland, such as it was, uh, did survive after the war and have some long-term consequences. Okay.